just, I, I had to make a tremendous leap of faith. I had to say, I've been on a mission. I experienced things there that I will never deny. I believe, I believe in that miracles happen. I believe in answer to prayer. And I'm not going to throw it all over, but boy, it was it was really hard for me at times. And so in 1978, I was driving down a freeway in uh, in Missouri, just out of Kansas City. We lived in Missouri at that time, and I heard an announcer say, "Today, the head of the Mormon Church announced that he had received a revelation." <laughs> what? <laughs> and he and then that's when he announced that all males would be allowed to receive a priesthood and and i had to pull off the freeway and sit there on the side and cry for a while i was just so relieved and so happy another episode of the cultural hall this one with dean hughes we're going to get to that interview in just a couple of minutes i've got some opening exercises some announcements to share with all of you First of all, all the new Patreon saints and you OGs, thank you so much for what you guys do. Thank you for putting some dollars behind the support that you have of the Cultural Hall. Man, 2020, I was looking back over all the episodes and we shared the top 10 episodes of the year and looking and listening and all these things to what we did. And what an amazing year. And 2021 is going to be even better. We hit our 500th episode this year and we are about $100 off of what we would like to be on Patreon by our 500th episode. So if you missed that uh, $3 tier on Patreon, there's a couple of exciting things I should tell you about. If you want to save a little bit of money and subscribe or be a Patreon saint for an entire year and sort of pay up front, you can save a couple of months. So uh, if you wanted to do the whole year, normally at the $5, that would be $60. Uh, You can buy into the whole year at $50. And if you wanted to be at the $10 level, that would normally be 120 and it's 100 if you want to be a year-long Patreon saint. That's a great option about how you can save some money, be at those different tier levels, and we would love to have you do that. That's one thing. Uh, we're looking to get into YouTube, so if you are looking to uh, help out in the hall and you think, man, I've got video skills and I know YouTube, and you've got like an hour-ish a week, maybe a little less than an hour, you can email us, contact at theculturalhall.com. And we're still going on that church history tour in July. Now, fingers are crossed, there's some variables there because of the virus, etc. But as of this recording, right this moment, you can go to KamoraTours.org and find out about the Cultural Hall Tour to all of the historic sites uh, with Kimura Tours. That's awesome. It's a great year. We thank you so much for your support and uh, for your listens and ask that you would share this. Uh, with those that may not have ever heard of it. We're constantly finding new people, uh, maybe someone in your ward, or you could share it with the ministering family or, you know, whatever the thing may be. Uh, Sharing helps uh, people caring more. I tried to rhyme it, didn't work. Uh, I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. I can't believe that it's taken us this long to get Dean Hughes into the uh, to the Cultural Hall. Well, because, for example, he's written like a thousand books. Literally, though, I, I think if I'm getting the count right, uh, Dean Hughes, you have written 103 books. Is that correct? Uh, I, 
it's approximately that. It might be 104. I, I can't. I lose track. It's sort of like my age, you know, where I get to the point where I, I think, what what year am I in now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, about that. You're most most known for his historical World War II era Children of the Promise. You have all sorts of other books. You've spoken every single place that's ever been created, and you've been uh, around since the beginning of time. So. Thank you for finally making time uh, away from writing books to come to the cultural hall. So, so if I've been around since the beginning of time, well, let's see. No, actually, I've only been around since World War II, so uh, it's not quite the beginning of time. You, you are technically uh, the very definition of a, what I think is a boomer, born in no, 43. No, 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 no. Oh, no? no a, boomer, a boomer was born right after the war. Oh, oh, a war baby. I was born in 1943. Okay, I didn't realize that we called those uh, those those babies war babies. So you're, yep. I mean, we can't even we can't even call you a boomer now. I, no, no, I, no. I don't, I don't okay, even. <laughs> uh, Dean, so great to have you here. I want to get to know what you've experienced. You are 77 years young at the telly. Oh, I'm sorry, 76 at mm. the uh, time of this interview. 77th this year. It just impart your wisdom. That's what we'll do for the next hour. How does that sound? Okay. All I have. I yeah. can get that into an hour. Yeah. Your wife would tell me you could get that done in five minutes. Uh, right. And then what would we do for the rest of the 55 minutes with your wisdom? <laughs> tell me about your life. Tell me about uh, Tell me about who you are and how you got into writing so many gosh darn books. Well, um, without telling everything and going on forever, I, I was born during World War II in Ogden, Utah, grew up there. And, um, you know, as a, as a, you know, a teenager, a kid in junior high, I started, I read a lot. I wanted to, I started saying I was going to be a writer when I grew up. And I, I sort of geared my life toward that. And uh, in terms of education and so forth, I had a wonderful creative writing teacher at, uh, at Ogden High School, and then I stayed in Ogden, went to Weaver State, where I had another great uh, uh, English professor there who uh, helped me with my creative writing. And then I went to the University of Washington in Seattle, and I got my master's degree in creative writing and my PhD in uh, literature. And uh, all this while, I was writing, and uh, I, I wrote books that I sent off to publishers and got turned down. And entered into contests and they didn't win and so forth. But um, I, did a, I did a novel from my master's degree. And then after I got out I, of my PhD program, I, I went to, um, to uh, Central Missouri State College, it was called in those days. And I taught there and uh, I taught mostly lit classes and some creative writing and, uh, and kept writing. What, what, was got, was the unfortunate thought the and this is a, maybe a crass term for it, but the those that can't do they teach. Well, uh, I I wasn't thinking about it that way at that time. I was thinking that that teaching opened up for me uh, the the time if I didn't teach summers, for instance, to uh, uh, and a and a college professor's schedule is a little more open than than in public schools, mm -hmm. and so it gave me a chance to to write while I was also teaching. So I was still thinking in terms that I wanted to quote, to be a writer, but I needed to make a living. So it was kind of one of those plan A, plan B kinds of things. And, uh, and uh, so I, um, I had gotten interested in children's books at one point and, uh, 
and I published my first uh, children's book in 1979, and that was with Deseret Book, and it was a historical novel uh, set in Missouri, where I was living uh, at the time. And um, and then a couple of years later, I published a, a sports novel, and I published my first book with a New York publisher. And um, so I was kind of off and running in the children's and young adult area. And I decided to take one year off and write full time for a year and see how it would go. Mm-hmm. I, ended, I ended up taking off uh, 17 years. <laughs> and uh, I wrote full time for those years. And during that time, I moved back home to Utah. And I taught a little bit at BYU, just some adjunct kinds of things. And then eventually BYU asked me to come over and teach as a, as a guest professor for a year. And that year stretched into 10 years. And so that, that gets me up to 2008. I retired from BYU. My wife and I went on a couple of missions, one to, um, to uh, Nauvoo and one to uh, Beirut, Lebanon. Oh, wow. And, we, and I kept writing, and that's what I'm doing even today. And so that's why I've written a lot of books, because I've been writing for a very long time. Uh, I'm told that Nauvoo, Illinois, exactly like Beirut, Lebanon, right? Like you could almost <laughs> not even tell the difference between the two. Yeah, yeah, that's really exactly true. <laughs> now, now being able to be a senior missionary, you get to pick. Did you pick to go to Beirut as well, or was that sort of a different calling that came your way? Well, you know, to some degree you pick. Uh, we, we, uh, we agreed to do a public affairs mission, and we were, we were kind of told we were going to go to, to Germany. I had gone on my mission as a young man to Germany, mm-hmm. and we thought that's where we were going. And then when we got the call, it was to Nauvoo, which took us uh, totally by surprise. But we, uh, but then the, on this second mission, uh, we had friends who were in Beirut, and they were looking for someone to replace them and, mm. and having a hard time. Everybody was scared to go to the Middle East, and, and we thought it sounded like an adventure, and, and we agreed to go. But, but that was not a public affairs mission. That was, it was kind of an amorphous sort of non-defined thing. We, uh, we weren't. Uh, humanitarian missionaries, but much of what we did amounted to humanitarian work. We taught English classes, free English classes that we offered to anyone, but we we ended up working mostly with refugees. And uh, then we also taught lessons, missionary lessons, and uh, we saw people come into the church through that. Uh, We were not called missionaries. We didn't wear tags. We didn't wear, I mean, I didn't wear a suit other than Sundays. And, uh, but, um, we were called representatives hmm. and um and well it was a real it really was an adventure so it's a fascinating place what what is, what is the church like in beirut lebanon they had a, a really nice branch there the uh there were a few really fine leaders and they had had a branch there for quite a long time it's a much longer story than i'll tell now but uh, right now things have, have gotten a little tougher because uh with the economic problems they're having there now and uh, and uh, you know you may have read about all the protests they've had there and the government is kind of sure a little crooked hard and yeah and uh, so some of the a couple of the leaders have left the area and moved to other places and so they're struggling a little more but they have a nice church on a you know it's a it's one floor of a high-rise building very modern nice building and and uh, some really great members there and uh and so it's nice, but there's no mission as such, uh, and uh, so that's why we were not called to to a mission as such. We were 
uh, we were called to serve there, but not uh, not officially called missionaries. Are are you were you the only representatives within the country, or was there a small handful there, of you? There was another couple in Beirut, and they were humanitarian missionaries. And there were a total of eight couples in the Middle East, and we would meet oh, wow. twice a year in in Jordan. But that number has dropped now because. Uh, there were so many problems in uh, in Iraq, w- up in Kurdistan. They had to withdraw the missionaries there. Mm. And there's right now, there's I think there's one couple left in Beirut, but we had heard that they might be brought out too. So, you know, there are not many couples over there now. I'm not sure how many. Ever, ever in danger? No. Well, yes. Every time we got in a car, tried to drive to <laughs> church. Anywhere else, it was it was the traffic there is absolutely crazy. But no, we never felt any sense of danger at all. How long how did how long did that service end up being in Beirut? We were there a year and a half. Oh my gosh, I would love to, and uh, and and maybe you have done this, and I'm just unaware. But journals, your writings from that time, a skilled writer like yourself talking about those experiences, are those available anywhere that people can read? Uh, no, but there is a book coming out with Simon & Schuster this fall called Displaced. And it's not about our experience, although it's based to a large degree on things we saw there. It's about the street kids in Beirut who uh, who go to the cars when they stop at stoplights and mm-hmm. they sell them gum and roses and various things. And, and I got we got very interested in a young man who... Uh, was always on our corner close to where we lived. And I was able to interview him through a translator and learn some things about his life and did more research. And, and uh, so that book is finished now. Uh, we'll be out in, in September. It's called Displaced. And that's a book that you've written, not necessarily orig- religiously affiliated, although uh, maybe yeah. maybe there is part of you that it, that we kind of read into that story, or is it religiously affiliated? Uh, it's not religiously affiliated. It, at least not. Well, it is in a, in a certain sense. I mean, in the way that you write from a place where you are, mm-hmm. and and it does involve a, a Muslim boy, who is the one on the streets. He's a Syrian boy who's who's selling chiclets on the street. But it also involves a Christian, uh, a couple of Christian people who uh, uh, help him. And and so it, what what they what it gets into is the idea that. Uh, people of different backgrounds can work together and solve some problems. Uh, it's a pretty dark picture for those Syrian refugees in Lebanon, but uh, there are uh, non-governmental associations that, that are or organizations that are there and that try to help. And it's, it's an uphill battle, but, uh, but there is some help for them. Wow, that's pretty remarkable. We'll have a link for that, uh, obviously, in the show notes for this episode. Check that out displaced and Shyman and Schuster that's that's nothing to to balk at that's a pretty big deal I've been publishing with uh, a company called Athenaeum who was owned by Macmillan when I first published with him in about 1981 or something like that mm-hmm. and uh, they were bought out by Simon and Schuster and so when I say Simon and Schuster I know people know that name but it's a it's a subsidiary of Simon & Schuster called Athenaeum, which is a very, actually a very prestigious book, especially in the publishing company, especially in the children's field. But I've published with them for about 40 years, too. Which, and, which, uh, which is just remarkable, man. Beat the, beat the chest of being awesome. I think that's just, <laughs> that, that, that is incredible. And also, 
0% of where I thought this conversation would go to, at least up to this point. Uh, so you so you come home from serving a, a mission in Beirut, and, and, and then what? A lot of people would just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to retire, and I've got some kids or some grandkids or some traveling. But you've, you've, you just can't give it up, can you, Dean? Well, that's right. We, we do have uh, all of our grandkids live in Utah now, which was not always true. And we have a little great-grandson now we really love and we miss seeing now with uh, oh, life shut down. But, but uh, you know, I, I, we travel and, uh, you know, I like to play a little golf and <laughs> a few things. But I just can't get out of the habit of riding. And uh, so more than anything else, I'm still riding. I want to take a break real quick, and when we come back in the second block, I do want to visit for a brief moment what it was like to be a missionary in Nauvoo, and then I want to talk about your latest series. Uh, we'll talk about the book Muddy and the book River, and I, as I understand it, I think there's a third book coming as well. We'll get into all that. We'll answer those questions coming back in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, this is Dan the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. Friends, I know a lot of you guys and girls are working from home. So here's some tips for making sure your computer's ready for working at home, because if your computer fails, it's going to be really hard to get it fixed because of dwindling supply and parts. But we have parts right now, and we have a limited supply of new computers available for you. Make sure your computer is healthy and virus and malware-free. Hackers are trying to infect people and stealing their information during these challenging times. We'll scan the health of your computer for viruses and malware, plus scan your hard drive, memory, and components to make sure you don't have any failing parts. You want to make sure you have strong antivirus and malware protection software as well. Just get into any PC laptops and we'll check your hardware and your software and scan your computer for viruses for absolutely free. Just go to PCLaptops.com. At PC Laptops, we've been serving you for over 28 years, and we've got your back during these times of need. We're all in this together. So just go to PCLaptops.com and we'll get you taken care of. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, take a second, go to your uh, your phone, go to your computer, and go to patreon.com slash thecultural That is the way that we fund this very show that you're listening to. We'd invite you to look at making a pledge. Maybe you can work it into your monthly budget. I know times are tight, but we would love for you to make that pledge. It's a monthly thing. It auto-deducts, so you'd actually never even know that it was there in the first place. Um, we have a $5 level and a $10 level. Would love to have you join that. Become a Patreon saint of the Cultural Hall and get you to be uh, a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group where people are having discussions uh, about these episodes that you hear. Dean, you got to serve a mission in Nauvoo. I think that's particularly pretty cool. Although you thought you were going to Germany, you end up in Nauvoo. Uh, <laughs> were you one of the um, the musical missionaries out in Nauvoo? No, we weren't. Uh, uh, we were practically the only missionaries there who were not. Uh, well, there were temple missionaries who were not, but we um, we were public affairs missionaries. So we went out and got to know people all through the region and uh, tried to make friends and uh, make sure that our impact there in that part of Illinois and across the river in Iowa was a positive one. And uh, we also worked with the, the groups that came there in the summer from BYU, the uh, performing groups and uh we we just tried to get to know people and and uh make things better for people who sometimes were a little bit 
curious about each other and and so it it, it, it was a lot of fun it was an easy kind of experience so we didn't sing <laughs> Never uh, did. i would i would pay to see a video of singing and dancing dean hughes <laughs> Uh, you know, it, people may may recognize this or may not recognize this, depending on their familiarity with Nauvoo. But, I mean, there are certainly two different factions very much at play. Some would say maybe three or even four uh, within the church and its breakoffs that are still very present in Nauvoo. When you talk about um, nurturing relationships, was it between the, the mainstream Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Community of Christ, which used to be the restored uh, church, or is that, or 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 who who were those relations uh, most strained, and what what kind of growth uh, were you able to to build while you were there? Overall, thing the things are fine there now. They're they're really good. Uh, we got along great with the Community of Christ. They uh, we just cooperated completely, and they helped us, and we helped them, and. And we were very close to all the people who were involved on the historic sites, but also in the in the churches there. And we really felt no strain at all there. Uh, there are those who don't. I mean, can you imagine if you lived in a little town and every summer something like a hundred thousand people came to your town mm-hmm. and and all wanted to visit the historic part and uh, roam around the city? I mean. There were times when when local people got a little tired of us, and after you've lived there for a while as a missionary, you get a little tired of the Mormons coming to you. Know? I oh sorry, I used that word. Oh, Mormon. you're fine. We'll just <laughs> tell anyway, people. We'll just tell people we recorded this before we had to call it the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day okay, Saints. Okay, we'll we'll lie about that. <laughs> but anyway, th- there were um, there were times when, like the historical society there. The local historical society—they—they they were a little jealous of the fact that people came there and thought the only thing that ever happened there were that the uh, that the early saints had been there, and uh, whereas there was a whole lot of history there before and after us, you know. But it wasn't bad. We got along well with people, and uh, we, uh, you know, sometimes people felt it was completely a uh, an LDS thing and uh, didn't see any reason to come visit and so we one of the things we tried to do is cooperate with their uh, tourist uh, promotions and 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 say you know when people come come to us too and we'll send our people to you places like quincy and annabelle and so forth yeah there are some pretty remarkable things uh within the cultural hall we have the opportunity to go on a church history tour this coming summer uh, mm-hmm. knock on wood, hoping that things like that actually are yeah. able to happen. But to be able to go to Nauvoo and and not only the, the historical sites, but the, the very town of Nauvoo itself is sort of quaint and uh, inter- yeah. interesting aside from church things. Um, but but it's it was also very interesting to note the, the very uh, different feelings for those that ended up in Nauvoo that have nothing to do with the church. Uh, compared to those who wanted everything to do with the church that ended yeah. up in Nauvoo, yeah, yeah, and 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 with that, the that ice cream shop that's right there on the main street in Nauvoo, <laughs> yeah. several yeah. several pounds have been gained yeah. uh, within that ice cream shop alone. Yeah, it's a great place. That's your right. your uh, your latest project is it, it is a three part series, correct? Uh, no, no, you just just two. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
It's just two. Uh, the first one, see, because I was trying to figure out what the uh, I was trying to figure out what the third book would be called. The first one is called Muddy. The yeah. second one uh, is called River. So I was like, is the third one going to be called Bottom? So it's Muddy River Bottom, <laughs> or or what it would be? Set set the stage for what these books are. Give us a little taste. Okay, the way this happened was that. I got interested in the Muddy River Mission, which took place down in in what we eventually found out was Nevada, but it was not clear at the time. Brigham Young sent people down south of St. George into uh, the Moapa Valley and uh, or the Muddy River Valley. And uh, the idea was that it would be an extension of the Cotton uh, Mission. And it, it was very, very hot there, but it looked... But the growing season was almost year-round, and there was plan to do a lot of growing down there and so forth. And it turned out to be very challenging. It was a really difficult mission. And the question almost from the beginning was whether it would work, whether it would hold out. And one of the reasons I got interested was that I had a relative who was down there. And so I started doing research about it, and I proposed the book, and um, and uh, Deseret was interested in it. I got started on it, and then we got called to that mission in in uh, Beirut. And so when I got back, what I found was it was getting longer and longer. <laughs> and uh, what I found was that the the people who settled the Muddy River Valley, eventually when they left that area, went up to what's called Long Valley above Kanab. And, and they were the people who eventually established Orderville. And so the first story is about a mission, or the first book is about the mission to the Muddy River. And the second one, to a large degree, is about the United Order and what it was like to try to live the United Order. So pause real quick. Give give an idea of uh, uh, today, geographically speaking, like Moapa Valley, I want to say, is Mesquite? Is that? South of Mesquite on the way to... Uh, uh, Las Vegas, uh, you'll see signs uh, there that say Moapa Valley, and then it heads off toward Lake Mead, out toward the to the eastern part of of that little corner of of Nevada. So it's essentially, um, if people are trying to picture this in a mind in a map, it's it's the southernmost part of Utah, and then from between there to Las Vegas is about where we're talking about, and then yeah, and then Orderville. And and getting into the United Order, which I definitely want to talk about, but just to give people this context, is uh, sort of around Zion National Park and um, yeah, if, and, if and that up, side. Yeah, if you go up and over through Zion and into that next valley over on the other side, you know, if you know the town of Panguitch, for instance, it's it's south of Panguitch, so it's um, it's in the it's in the south, kind of central. Uh, Utah, but very far south. Okay, so now we've sort of given us those geographical pieces, and people wanted to live the United Order. Now, people, yeah. you and I, well, we, we hear that and we kind of go, okay, well, we know what the United Order is. Some people may have no idea. Okay, well, first of all, let me finish one thing I, I, I didn't complete, and that was that eventually the book was too long and I broke it into two. Hmm. And so we decided to call it Muddy and River, kind of combining the two as to it's like two parts of one story, and that's where the titles come from. And but muddy is is kind of the symbol of what the muddy was like in terms of not only was the water muddy, but the the issues down there were pretty muddy. And uh, with river, you get a, a a cleaner stream, but you uh, 
you get new, uh, you know, new kinds of issues there too. And um, when you say that the people wanted to live the United Order, it was really Brigham Young's proposal. He went all through uh, just the last three years before he died, all through southern Utah and worked his way back up to Salt Lake. You know, he started with St. George, where he spent the winters, and he wanted to really finally live a form of the law of consecration and one that he thought was the proper way to live. And so he established united orders all through the towns of of Utah and southern Idaho and so forth. And um, they didn't last very long in most cases. The one in uh, Orderville lasted the longest. And it was partly because the people who had been on the muddy were so poor when they came out of there that it was not hard to have no rich or poor among them. They already had the, yeah. the no rich part figured out. Yeah. And and cooperation was something they had already learned. And so it was really, you know, people always talk about the United Order as this, this unsuccessful event that took place. And, and in fact, for six or seven years, it really went well in Orderville. And there were other things that came up that, that caused it to fall apart. But people people did manage to live it and live it pretty well. Now, one thing I need to add to all that is that when I when I got to uh, studying the that Muddy River mission, one of the things I realized is that many of the people who were there practiced plural marriage. Mm. And uh, so I, I just realized there was no way I could write about this story without getting into the whole issue of polygamy. And uh, I talked to Deseret Book and, uh, and, and the editors there and they really felt that it was time that we take that issue on, or not issue, but that that hist- that part of our history on. And mm-hmm. uh, I think too many people have listened to the what you might call the narrative that uh, that people uh, used to portray polygamy in those days. The uh, the political parties in the East were were condemning it as one of the twin towers of of evil and and. Uh, you know, that slavery and polygamy had to be done away with. And, and, and they pictured it as these, these lascivious men who were getting all these young girls. And, and uh, to some degree, I think that narrative persisted. And, you know, I think modern uh, saints now often feel sort of embarrassed about it. You know, even though they may have come from polygamous families very often it's sort of like i wish that had never happened i wish Mm. we didn't have to try to explain this and so what i've tried to do in the two books is really give more of a sense of what it was like what the challenges were and uh help people see that it really was a religious practice in the minds of of the the leaders of the church but also in those who were who tried very hard to live it so that's that's one of the issues through both both books. I, I think it's uh, it's fascinating that you wanted to take on the really light topics of the law of consecration and polygamy. Like, there are easier <laughs> subjects you could have written about, Dean. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing you say that, because because one of the things I've noticed is when people write into DeseretBook.com and um, assess these books, I get like about oh, I don't know, 80-85% of the people give it five stars, mm-hmm. and about 10% give it one star and say they hated the book, you know. And um, I just thought I'd mention that. That's really good. <laughs> but, <laughs> why, why, those that hate your books, why do they hate them? Because of what you just said. It's, these are hard topics. And for some people, just the very thought of polygamy is so offensive to them, they do not 
want to read about it and they don't want someone to uh, tell them that it was uh, it wasn't such a terrible thing after all or mm. whatever mm -hmm. but also the money mission was it's, it's not very faith promoting as a mission you know usually when we tell about a mission it's um this place you go and you make the desert blossom as the rose and it's successful and you look back at these noble pioneers and uh, what happened in in the muddy was um was quite different from that i won't tell the whole story but but it was so difficult and 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 leaders sometimes asked things of those people that from the distance of salt lake or saint george sometimes to those people who were living it it didn't seem like very good advice and so sometimes you were up against obedience on the one hand and your own sense of what worked and made sense as far as what you grew where you planted and everything else and so one of the things that first book is about is a is a, a man not only learning to live in polygamy but having to go against his own conclusions at times in order to be obedient and 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 wrestling with with whether he should and could do that and i think that's a very modern kind of issue i think there are a lot of young people especially in the church today who find themselves saying you know where does my thinking and 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 obedience begin right when when do i have a right to to uh say that doesn't make sense to me yeah and um it's hard it's hard and and I know as I've gotten older, over the course of a lifetime, I've come down more and more on the side of obedience, mm. and 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 I think this, I think the book does too, but still, it's a very real question for many of us, and 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 I think that's what I tried to do in these books. You know, it's it's nice to be to write books that are mostly laudatory and and uh, mostly um, faith promoting. But there are hard questions that we're dealing with in our lives these days, and there were hard questions then. And I think it's important to deal with those. I think we're being more open now about our history. I think we're taking on some of the difficult chapters of our history. And, you know, I was one of the many people who worked on the on Saints. I worked on the second volume and and uh, we, we dealt with some really hard issues and polygamy came up a lot in that. And that was that was part of what got me ready to write the, the, the book. But but I think now we are saying to ourselves, well, what about polygamy? I have these these wonderful this wonderful heritage that goes back to that. But but what was it like? Why do we just almost prefer not to talk about it? So, yeah, I take on some hard things, but I try to do it in a way that isn't. Um, it's not like, you know, I'm not writing an expose. I'm mm -hmm. not writing an attempt to. To, to put this in your face, you know, anything but. But I am saying there were hard things that, that the saints dealt with. And, and you know what? Pioneers didn't always have their hold their heads up high, march forward, and the children didn't always sing as they walked. And, you yeah, know, yeah, they were real human beings like us. Sometimes we say, oh, I couldn't have done what they did. And I think, wow. That's an interesting lesson to get from our history that yeah. they were strong. We're not. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you'll have to forgive me. So you, you mentioned some of the reviews. And uh, so I clicked over as, as you were talking a little bit about it. And I, oh, don't, I, I don't read that first one on river. It's uh, so bad. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, these are the ones uh, this is, I think just for you, actually, maybe this is, 
Oh no, this is for Muddy. And I and I just think it, it's worth pointing out because there are so many great reviews about what you write. But but to give people an idea of what you know, some people that would say contrary to to the greatness of your books, this person says did not enjoy it. It was a push, not happy, not a happy story at all. And then another one, so depressing and miserable. And I just am like, well, but maybe, but maybe the next line in that review would be authentic or or real to the times. You know, some people kind of engaging in what they thought something might be and and having something else completely come out of it. They are works of fiction. I think it's worth noting. Yeah. Well, I think right now that the marketing department of Deseret Book is saying, Dee, what were you thinking? You <laughs> let him right into reading terrible reviews. <laughs> but, um, well, anyway. But no, but I th- but but here's why I do it. One, because I know that you're a good sport and I can, you know, sort of <laughs> sort of poke you as far as that goes. But, you know, we talk within the gospel that it's, you know, to be lukewarm is, yeah. you know, what's the interest in that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. To, to be true. to be hot or to be cold, you know, sure, a couple people. I think so I'm looking at it. There's four bad reviews but 35 five-star reviews and so to me yeah. I go, "Oh, okay. By and large, <laughs> you know, people are really liking this uh, a whole lot and you don't write 104, maybe 105 books and be a terrible writer, you know? Like <laughs> I just think the justification in that is uh it's it, it is interesting though. Do you find yourself ever um, going down the rabbit hole of reading them or have, have you basically gotten to the point where you're just like, nope, stay away from that? Well, you know, I have a really frail ego. I must admit it. I mean, I uh, one of the things about writing books is that you do get reviewed and, and in different kinds of, you know, the national books, uh, the New York published books, you get magazines and journals and reviewing services, reviewing them. And, and you just get bad reviews sometimes. And uh, I always tell my wife to give me three days after a bad review, and then I'll be over it and I'll put it behind me. But uh, it's it's painful, you know? I mean, if, if you have a job and you get a bad report from your boss, they don't publish it. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> they may call you in and talk to you about it, but they don't publish it. And so I, it's hard for me to have someone to write something that I want so badly to be good and then to have someone say, this is terrible, (laughs) but it happens. It always happens. I'm just trying to thicken you up a little bit, Dean. That's all (laughs) at your permission. I just thickened up your skin a little bit, you know, give you a couple of bruises. They're just, they're just war trophies as it were. (laughs) Let's take another break. And when we, when we come back, I want to talk about, you know, you, you sort of mentioned, and we queued it up at the very beginning of, Full-led life up to this point. And I, we don't get the opportunity to talk to people of your age very often. So there's some things I'd like to kind of unwrap that, that have to do maybe a little less with writing and maybe more just with the perspective that you have on life and on the gospel. So we'll come back and we'll do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hey, it's me, Richie T. I found myself with a little bit more time on my hands, and maybe you're finding yourself in that same position. Well, allow me to introduce you to Best Podcast Consultant in Utah. I don't have the domain, and and really I can do this wherever because I'm doing most of the classes virtually, but if you would like to reach out to me, uh, probably the simplest way is if you just do contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find me online 
richietstedman.com. You can check that out. I would love to help you if you are already established in podcast or you're thinking, you know what? I've got this downtime. It's a passion project. I've always wanted to do it. You can reach out to me. You can do contact at theculturalhall.com or find me on any social media at Richie T. Stedman. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, thank you for continuing to listen to this discussion that we're having with Dean Hughes. Uh, if you like this episode or you've liked any of the other episodes we've published recently, or you've liked every single one and you love it so much, you can leave us a review. We would love to hear from you wherever you're getting this episode. Uh, feel free to leave that there. And if if uh, if you want to leave us a one star, that's okay. We can learn from a one star. We got thick skin. <laughs> you can leave us that one star review. I don't want that, to be clear. But if you feel like we warrant it, I would love to hear from you, no matter how it is that I hear from you as you leave a review for the show. You can always reach out to us on social media, too, at The Cultural Hall, wherever you do it. Dean, you... Um, you I always delicately walk around this. You are an older person, older than me, don't certainly. Don't say elderly. Okay? Don't say elderly. I, I don't like that. Word. I didn't. I just said uh, older. I just said I older. The news would call you a vulnerable person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, give me an idea of as you as as you experience this time in your life uh, in relation to the gospel. What, what do you see that excites you about the church um, now that maybe you didn't see early on? Or what, what, you know, impart some wisdom. You've got people listening to you from all walks of life, every country, every state, different ages. Like what, what, what do you have to share with, with people that are just looking to know more from someone who's seen more? You know, I often say to my wife, I was ahead of my time. There are a lot of things that I... Uh, that I believed or felt or predicted that uh, I was, um, that people disagreed with me about and even sometimes questioned my loyalty. And as I've gradually seen them come about, it's been, it's been wonderful for me. You know, when I was in graduate school, it was in the era that uh, blacks could not have the priesthood. Mm. And uh, that was really, really hard for me. It tested me right down to the bone. And I, there were times when I just didn't know how I was going to get through so the, the, that, that doubt and then the, the, the subsequent doubts that built from that. And, and you know, when you're in graduate school, I, as an undergraduate, I majored in English and minored in philosophy and, uh, you know, learned just enough to be really dangerous. And, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, in graduate school, you're surrounded by people who just, you know, they just don't. Very few of my fellow students had believed in religion of any kind, and and uh, and so that that and, and people would say, "What's the deal with your church? Why don't you let blacks become priests?" Is the way they looked at it, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just I I had to make a tremendous 
leap of faith. I had to say, I've been on a mission. I experienced things there that I will never deny. Uh, I believe, I believe in that miracles happen. I believe in answer to prayer. And I'm not going to throw it all over, but boy, it was it was really hard for me at times. And so in 1978, when, uh, when I was driving down a freeway in uh, in Missouri, just out of Kansas City, we lived in Missouri at that time, and I heard an announcer say, "Today, the head of the Mormon Church announced that he had received a revelation." <laughs> and I was, what? <laughs> And he, and then that's when he announced that all males would be allowed to receive the priesthood. And, and I had to pull off the freeway and sit there on the side and cry for a while. I was just so relieved and so happy. And people who had told me when I had said, I think this might change someday, had told me I was I was being unrighteous to ever mm. think such a thing. And there have been a lot of things like that. You know, I can remember the old missionary lessons where, the, the approach we took, and I kept saying, you know what we ought to do is this and that. And what I said back then is what we do now, you know, with the, with the approach that the, uh, that the, the missionary lessons take with, with uh, you know, preach my gospel. And, um, and so it's been, it's been a good thing for me to have to continue on when, when I thought some things ought to be different. And then it's been satisfying for me to see those things change. And, one of the best things of all for me is to see what's happened with our transparency now about our own history. Because I got interested in church history a long time ago. And uh, and I would sometimes in a priesthood class or a Sunday school class mention something and people would say, that isn't true. You know, I've never heard that before. And I had to learn to kind of pull back and be careful what I said because it bothered people. Mm-hmm. But but as uh, as the internet started to introduce all kinds of things to young people, and they started to raise questions about it, we were simply forced to to stop using our favorite myths and really look at our history. And I think that's been wonderful. I think the history, the, the saints, the four volumes that are coming out now, it's just a, it's just a wonderful history of the church by comparison to anything we had in the past. And and you know, I watch. President Nelson, and I mean, he's open to to change, and he is saying, you know, maybe we ought to do this, maybe we ought to do that. And, you know, for years, I think a lot of us said this three-hour block really doesn't work very well, <laughs> you know. And then there it was; it finally happened, you know. And uh, you know, I I can remember talking about home teaching, and it, it had evolved into. Uh, one visit after the 28th of the month and uh, don't talk about much of anything very real, you know, yeah, yeah. But, but report that you did your home teaching and this change to ministering, I just think is, is been a wonderful change. And so, you know, we have ongoing revelation and it's, to me, it's, it's really an inspiring thing to watch it uh, happen now. It begs the question where you feel like you're, you're able to see the writing on the wall of some things or, or certainly feel impressed upon things to change? Are there things that you're like, well, maybe not in li- my lifetime necessarily, but maybe in the near-ish future that you think, man, I bet I can see some movement on that as far as the church goes? Oh, I better be careful. I, I think the 
the issue of gay marriage is really an interesting one. And I don't I have I'm not going to make any prediction at all about what might happen on that. But I do see a start to change our attitudes. Mm -hmm. And I can remember how the homophobia that was around when I was a young person that I inherited from from everyone, from my family, from everyone. And, and, and we have come a long way. But I still think we've got a long way to go to truly respect and treat uh, gay people with the, uh, with the proper um, uh, attitude. And I think, I think it's changing, but I think we've got a long way to go on that. Yeah, for sure. How do you feel about the change with uh, Elders Quorum and, and your old folks with us, too? How do you like that? Well, I think that's been good. I happen to, you know, I live in Midway, Utah, and, and we have a lot of people my age who live in our ward. And uh, so we kind of, uh, we had a big high priest group, a huge high priest group, and a fairly small elders quorum. And so I think in some ways there's a danger that we have, that the older guys have dominated. But I think it's great. I think that, I think that was a wise decision. Uh, I've seen, I've been in little branches where you had to, all meet together, and uh, and so often uh, the elders' quorums were kind of weak because of uh, the time of life they were in and everything else. And to bring us all together, I think, just makes more sense. I think it works really well. Mm-hmm. Is there any thought or plan to serve another mission? You and 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 your wife thinking about something like that? We think about it. I. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I mean, we've thought about it. Well, since I came home from Beirut, I have had a, a back surgery and a hip replacement. Oh, geez. And, and uh, I'm just getting, so I, you know, I, I, I still can only walk it like about a mile and a half if we go out for a walk. And, and uh, I'm, I'm getting my strength back gradually, but, uh, but I start to realize, hey, you know, I've heard about old age, but I didn't know there was really such a thing. And mm-hmm. I'm starting to feel like I'm getting there now. And, uh, you know, as you, as you start getting closer to 80, you start thinking, whoa, yeah, <laughs> what, what's going on here? You know, and so I don't know. We might we might put our I, papers in. As my grandma always used to say, she says, yeah, your parts wear out and they can't yeah. get they don't have any new parts down at the part store. They just start to wear <laughs> out. I always sort of appreciated that perspective. <laughs> But pain... well, I got a ceramic, I got a ceramic hip, so they have some new parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you start you start to uh, gain some respect for those uh, those uh, you know those early model cars as they make their way down the street. You go, hey, look at that! <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. that that car right there. You know, Dean, uh, I appreciate you sort of adventuring into various topics uh, with me uh, of, that we that we touched on today. You can get the book Muddy and the book River from Deseret Book, and you can find a link to those books at uh, theculturalhall.com in association with this episode. And then uh, Simon & Schuster, that book, um, Displaced, check out and pick that up, and I'll I'll make sure that we have a link for that um, there as well. We ask everyone who steps into the Cultural Hall three questions, Dean, so I'm going to ask those of you right now. The first question is, do you have a calling, sir, and what is it? I am the gospel doctrine teacher in our ward. I should say I'm one of the gospel doctrine teachers in the world and in the ward. And but I have I have a, a uh, an awkward situation. There are two of us, and the other one is Terrell Givens. Oh my gosh! <laughs> now, how would you like to be the alternative class to someone who knows everything? Oh wow! Uh, 
about the Book of Mormon, but about everything. And and so I call my class the overflow. <laughs> but, uh, but I absolutely love it. I, I, I've taught Gospel Doctrine a total of about, I don't know, six, seven years now, and uh, not all in one go around. But the bishop asked me if I was tired of it yet, and I said, yeah, I only want to do this another four or five years. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, good for you. Uh, Terrell, who is uh, a previous guest here in the Cultural Hall, mm -hmm. I know that he would appreciate that as well. <laughs> you saying that you're the overflow class. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? I would have the same calling and have Terrell Gibbons move somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I love but it. Then, but then I would miss him. Yeah. Uh, what I really want to do is attend his class and uh, for a while and, and then uh, maybe come back and do mine again. <laughs> there you go. Have him be your A student in your class. So if you yeah. don't know something, you can turn the time over to Terrell to, to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the last question we ask everyone, and I'll ask you to interpret this however you would like, um, but that question that we ask everyone is, what is your favorite part of your faith? You know... When I went through that time of really struggling with doubt, there was one thing I knew I could not and would not give up, and that was prayer. I believed in prayer, and I didn't have to try to believe in it. I believed in it. And some things I, I've had to try to believe in. Some things I've, I've said, I don't know that that makes sense to me, but I'll accept it. But not prayer. I have always believed, I don't know if I've always, but I've most of my life, I've believed in prayer and uh, believed that the Lord, I don't understand how the Lord can, you know, I, I, I don't want to believe that the Lord manipulates me and manipulates the world and sends me here and sends me there. I don't believe in that kind of a world. And yet I do know that in some way that I don't comprehend that things happen and then after they happen, I look back and I see the hand of the Lord in them. And I rely on that. That's the most that that's crucial to me to get through my life. I like that a lot. Dean Hughes, uh, find the links at theculturalhall.com or search out his books wherever you purchase books. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body. And that if you're not healthy enough to listen this, this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week. And that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat on the back 